this was the final song in a fantastic 10-song album released in 92, simply called The Mutton Birds, unashamedly NZ in origin, lyrics that spoke of our experiences like White Valiant, you're from the family that moved in up the valley, or Dominion Road, which kicked off the album, shining like a strip cut from a sheet metal plate, or a thing well made. I sell sporting goods. I've got a shop not far from Cathedral Square. Ending with their take on a New Zealand classic from 1970 by The Formula. And the brainchild of many of these songs on the album was last night inducted into the New Zealand Hall of Fame. And that is Don McGlashan. Well done, Don. Love your music. He's great, isn't he? The Don of Song. The Don of Song. Speaking of the Don, wonderful um, bit of feedback here. Uh, Kath was a fantastic commissioner at TVNZ, and I always enjoyed working with her on children's. She's now fantastic on the panel, as is Phil. She's my favourite. Love it. Mary. Oh, kia ora, Mary. Uh, Grant said, a friend of mine used to play for Auckland in the 90s, and he was allowed to take the shield home for the weekend, so he partied with it. I don't we, think he was alone either. We had shooters of tequila <laughs> off the Ranfurly Shield. And I can tell you what else I did with it, but it was a lot of fun. It was quite the beat up even then. So it sounds like the Ranfurly Shield has really been around. Yes. It's quite a history. Yeah. Mm. The panel uh, in the National very soon, um, in about four minutes' time, the uh, Snap panel poll. But it's been in the news this week. The forgotten issue for many parties is. Disability. The Green Party has gone big on the issue. 14 policies on disability. Four other parties have one single policy. Every other party, nothing. Nationals, one policy is to remove public transport discounts, but accessibility to even get out and vote is another issue entirely. Blind, low-vision NZ have been calling our voting system inaccessible. And thousands of Kiwis rely on support people to vote, maybe as ticking the paper for someone or supporting them to make the decision of who to vote for. How is that done fairly? IHC advocates for the rights of people with intellectual disabilities, disabilities and navigate this every election with us is IHC Director of Advocacy, Tanya Thomas. Kia ora, Tanya. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Assisting someone to vote, I assume, must be done carefully. What's important to consider when supporting people with intellectual disabilities to vote? Well, first and foremost, it's about making sure they have information in a way that they can understand it, having information that's clear, and having the time, taking the time that it takes to actually share that information and being very careful that you're not bi- being biased in any way and that you are purely a vehicle for helping them to access and understand that information. And I can imagine that last point in a democracy, very significant point. Very significant and I suppose the the main thing there is, is not everybody is trained and has the skills to help other people. Um, so we rely a lot on people's family members because they know the most about the person that they're trying to support. We rely on staff. All service providers rely on their staff to help people uh, get the information. 
But I must say that um, the Electoral Commission this year has gone all out. I take my hat off to them. They have been putting significant resources into connecting with disabled voters. Um, And they've got information in multiple accessible formats. By that I mean large print, screen reader friendly, recordings, easy read, braille. I mean, I think that's fantastic. They've also established a permanent role in their engagement team to um, engage with the disabled community, um, not just in election times, but in between. I mean, that's a fantastic start. All right, so a bit of a bouquet there to the uh, Commission on that point. Let's bring them up. We've got a panel here. Uh, let's bring them in. Phil. Yeah, a bit of a shout-out to, to a good friend of mine, Peter Van Brunhoven, whose uh, uh, initiative is the Magical Bridge Trust. And what they're doing is putting disabled-friendly playgrounds in uh, everywhere they can. And mm. it's really highlighted for me, you know, just how important play is and, and how being disabled... It shouldn't shouldn't uh, prevent you from being able to participate in public areas and public playgrounds. It's been a, been a great eye-opener for me. Catherine? I spoke to my uh, good friend Paula, who um, is in a wheelchair, and she suffers from a debilitative uh, disease and um, not something that's been caused by an accident, by some, but something that has just struck her down. And um, one of the things she's really concerned about is that People with disabilities often get lumped all in together, just like us Māori and other Polynesians get lumped all in the, being the same, and we all have different needs. So she was, I guess what I'm asking is, are people with different needs being catered for in the voting poll? Uh, I don't think they always are. So, for example, somebody who's a wheelchair user, they might be limited in the number of places that they can actually go to vote because they're not physically accessible. Um, Apart from the information that people need, they also need support, people to support them. They need um, adequate parking. They need, you know, facilities that are close by. So I think it is difficult. And the needs of people, for example, with intellectual disabilities are quite different from the needs of somebody who uses a wheelchair or someone who is, um, has low vision or is blind. Um, and that's information that we don't have a lot of, lot of. So one of the things that I think should be happening and that policy should be in place to recognise that you need high quality research, you need good data so that you can actually plan well and make sure that everything is accessible and that our environment is for everyone, not just people that are not disabled. One of the things that um, my mate also said was that um, that this is not a new thing, that the, the um, political parties ignoring the needs of the disabled. Why do you think that the messaging is not being heard? I think it's because... Um, there's not enough space and place made for disabled people to be part of and included in decision-making around things that impact their lives. I mean, you know, the saying in the disability sector is nothing about us without us. And I think that, you know, there is just not enough um, inclusion of people when it comes to making really good decisions about what matters to disabled people. Mm. 
Tanya, it's been around a year since the Ministry of Disabled People was established. Has it been a game changer or not? Well, they're very new and it's one of those highlights over the past year for for many of us in the disability uh, sector. But time will tell. I think they've got a hard job. You know, changing the system so that it works for everyone is a whole of government job, not just Faikaha, the new ministry. I mean, we want inclusion in housing, education, health. It's not just up to Faikaha. Yes, very good. Very interesting uh, stuff, and uh, I appreciate your time today, uh, Tanya. Thank you. That's uh, Tanya Thomas, the IHC Director of Advocacy. So, uh, yes, a lot big response regarding Ranfilly Shield and some uh, wonderful uh, memories coming back. I can recall walking the Ranfilly Shield games at Rugby Park, walking to the games at Rugby Park Hamilton, when we had the Morrinsville Clark brothers in Champion Mulu's team. Fullback Don the Boot Clark kicked a penalty goal from halfway. Those were the days. The Ranfilly Shield, the pinnacle of sporting excellence, says Hugh and Tauranga, which is, uh, kind of echoes what you're saying, Phil, that there is something about the Shield that uh, there's a real wider with it, eh? There's a real spirit about this Shield that people seem to really galvanise too. One of my formative memories was the 1981 uh, Wellington ran for the Shield era, and it was very influential on me uh, at, at, at that young age. And in fact, watched the the, the entire game on YouTube of the the Waikato uh, game where Arthur Stone ran ran the length of the field and won the Shield for for, for Waikato before Wellington took it off them. Uh, just wonderful days. The panel RNZ. National, 16 to 5. Catherine Graham with us, Phil Taylor with us, and now to the results of this snapshot panel. I asked a question to you. Uh, this is considering a petition that's been going on. Uh, they've got around about all nudging 5,000 signatures. Children of young people are fed up, they've had enough, they're sick of it, they're tired, they're mentally stressed. And they've asked, many have asked for a consideration for a four day school week, assuming that'll be college enough because, you know, you've got to uh, be at home by yourself. So uh, yes or no to that. And the poll, 55% said, yes, I support a four-day school week. 45% said no. I'm surprised. Surprised that the no's I'm, 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 I'm surprised that it's... A lot of yeses, but it's quite a revolutionary idea. But people are kind of into it. Well, maybe they're listening to their teenage kids. Fair point, yeah. Quarter to five, the panel. Grandparents who raise and care for grandchildren, most people would take their hat off to you. You're not alone. There are up to 30,000 grandparents filling this role in Aotearoa, but they often get inadequate support and can be put in considerable financial difficulty. Grandparents raising grandchildren have launched a virtual hikoi to Parliament calling on the government to fulfil New Zealand's international obligations. Hasn't had a huge amount of traction. We thought, let's cover this. With us is Christina Howe, a senior community advocate at Grandparents Raising Grandchildren. Kia ora, Christina. Kia ora. Tell us. 
more explain to us why can it be more difficult for grandparents well more difficult for grandparents that is a very loaded question um, I think, you know, we, if we start off even with the financial difficulties for grandparents, because the 30,000 children that we're talking about here that we know of, only about five or 6,000 of those are actually in formal care arrangements through Oranga Tamariki. The rest are in informal care arrangements. Now, all of those children, all of those grandparents, they struggle on a daily basis to even get financial support for these children to begin with. I mean, we did some research back in 2016 and it showed that only 15% of these grandparents even knew that they could get support from work and income for raising these children. So, I mean, we start right at the beginning with financial help, but the grandparents, they, they've also got the complex family dynamics going on. They've got trying to include their own children, the, the partners of their own children, and these grandchildren, they're a little bit displaced. They are not quite sure or understanding whether or not with their parents. It's a huge issue in New Zealand, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's one that's happened in our family too, that issue of actually taking on Catherine, uh, the grandchild, and going, OK, um, we'll support you here. It is complex. Eh? It's, it's quite a nuanced family dynamic, isn't it, Catherine? Uh, absolutely. I mean... Many of myself and many of my friends, um, I mean, I was an older mother and my parents, for example, were so stoked to finally get some mukos that they would steal them any chance they got. So I would turn up to, to childcare on Friday and they would, my son would just not be there. So I, I feel incredibly privileged, but also because they were able to do that and they were, they were um, financially able to do that as well. It never actually even occurred to me that they wouldn't be, which is interesting, right? Because I think many of us as Māori don't really think of the financial implications because we're in maybe a multi-generational family environment and so we all share the care and we share the way that that care is... um, is paid for, I suppose, if you know, in terms of feeding kids and that sort of thing. And not everything is a oranga tamariki uh, matter. You know, many of our grandparents are obviously sharing care because they want to. However, um, if they have a difficulty, what's the process to get support? The the, the process to get support financially. Um, is to go through that work and income system. Um, there is a benefit called the unsupported child's benefit, but of course that plays into the family dynamics again because these grandparents, they don't really want... If, if their child is receiving a benefit, for example, for, for the, the grandchild, they don't really want to take that from their own child to have in their pockets for the grandchild. So it's a huge complex situation. Um, but on the other side of it, some of these grandparents are fearful to even do that in the first place because of the repercussions that might come if they do take some money for this grandchild that they're raising because their child is missing out on that money for whatever reason. So these grandparents are really put into a a situation. I I appreciate a lot of them do raise grandchildren willingly um, and a lot of them do have kind of a shared care sort of situation. But there's definitely a lot of grandparents around New Zealand that are doing this because they have... Really, no other choice. All right, Phil Taylor. Yeah, what a complex issue, and thanks for bringing it to our attention. I, I think this is 
uh, you know, something as a community we need we need to grapple with the the the, the concept, uh, I guess, in New Zealand of this nuclear family just just is not um, flexible enough to take into account these scenarios, and uh, we we need to challenge that and 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 come up with with community solutions to this. I think. So, Christina, just mentioned to us you've launched this virtual hikoi. Tell us a bit more about it before you leave you. Oh, absolutely. So this is um, so this was with Family for Every Child and Voice Whakarongo Mai. And on the 30th of August, they went to Parliament. They they did a hikoi down in Parliament, um, and they they went with young, care experienced people, people that have been through that system, people that have been raised outside of their their home of origin. And the purpose of this was to amplify the voices of these care experienced children. Um, Now, what it really focuses on is the six promises that we have established that Parliament now, governments past, are just not prioritising for children in care. So the the virtual hikoi, I highly, highly recommend uh, going to have a look at it. It takes you right through from getting ready for this hikoi to doing it to a really powerful moment at the end where you've got these care-experienced young people signing the petition on Parliament steps before they hand it over. Um, there's many, many quotes in there from these care-experienced right. young people. It's very confronting and highly recommended. Well, it's great to have you on, Christina. I'd be interested to hear from those uh, grandparents who are uh, looking after their grandchildren. A uh, great issue to discuss here. Christina Howell there for, from Grandparents Raising Grandchildren. It's eight away from five. The panel are uh, NZ National. Thank you for all your feedback. Tomorrow, Friday, uh, we will um, bundle up more of those um, uh, texts and emails and put them in at 3.45. We have Catherine Graham and Phil O'Reilly on the panel. Now, finally, who doesn't love a good historic New Zealand watering hole. There's a number of them, uh, but they're all, many of them are dwindling. You had the Cook, the Empire, Chicks Hotel, all Dunedin. And up there is that stunning little brick building on the water. It's called the Carey's Bay Hotel, just around from Port Charles. Have you been there? It was a favourite haunt of famed artist Ralph Hortody. And there was a time in the 90s when Hortodies would rather incredibly line the walls. And it's now after 15 years on the market. Well, with us now is Dunedin heritage lover, Gregor Campbell, who does the Tales from Darkest Dunedin Tours. Gregor, good to have you on. Great to be here, Wallace. Now, Gregor, I can imagine you've had a tipple or three or four or six at the Kerry's Bay Hotel. I have, and... um Anyone who has been there will know it's not a brick building. It's actually made of locally quarried stone. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. And it's almost exactly 150 years old. It was built oh. in 1874. What, what what I know of the Kerry's Bay Hotel, Greg, is you, know, you go around that corner and it's just the most beautiful setting because it's right across the road, eh, and that sort of little inlet Kerry's Bay what, what, what do you think makes it special? Because it seems to be New Zealand famous. Oh, well, it's, it's special because it is 
pretty much unmodified. Um, yeah. The original building is there. They've built onto it um, so that people can dine there. But it's just still there in the original stone. And, of course, yes, you can stand at the doorway and you can look out into the harbour and you've got the, the Kerry's Bay fishing boats there and you've got the view right down to Ara Moana. Yeah. Um, on a on a beautiful day, it's um, there's really nothing better, and there are going to be people who will use the, the newly opened cycleway that oh. goes to Port Chalmers from Dunedin, and they'll they'll go and um, they'll have a beer at the Kerry's Bay Pub before they turn back. And just on that, before we go to our panel on that, as a very keen cyclist, how significant has that cycleway been? Because it was a pretty gnarly road. Oh, well, yeah, and I've had my moments on the Gnarly Road, and it's been immensely popular, at least to begin with, and there's going to be a hardcore of people who um, will just use it again and again. And, of course, um, there'll be people who will go to Port Chalmers and then take the ferry across to Portobello and will uh, take the other road back. Anybody who hasn't been, I thoroughly recommend it for a a pint in the uh, – at sunset. Phil, have you been to this hotel? No, I haven't. I was I was in Port Chalmers not that long ago oh. at the Hotori Memorial. So, uh, if I'd known that there was a pub that was associated with it, yeah. I definitely would have uh, frequented it. But I also like like the idea of that cycleway and and maybe a tipple at the end. Oh, that yeah. sounds brilliant to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's just around that corner. You go to Port Chalmers, just just around that corner. What about you, Catherine? Um, no, I've never been there. Yeah. Um, it but is tucked I, away. Yeah, I would imagine it looks pretty awesome in the photos that um, we've been sent from the from the realtor. Um, but I did some research about Ralph because he's an old mate of my dad's, Isn't and um, we have a hotere at home. Don't tell the insurers. Um, but so there there were thirteen. Ralph did drink there regularly as he lived in Carry Bay, and there and there there were thirteen works in that collection, um, and they were which must have been amazing to go into a pub and have hōtere on the wall, right? And then they were sold um, when the pub exchanged hands in 2009 to the offices of the guy that owned the NBR, the National Business Review. Barry Coleman. No, no, it wasn't him. It was someone else. Oh. Uh, sorry, I forget no. the name. And then um, from there, they, when he sold them, the whoever that person was, they were auctioned off in 2012. And so the collection, the Carries, so, you know, the Carries Hotel collection was um, dispersed. And uh, one of the works, Viva Aramwana, sold for $183,000. And at that time, in 2012, was the highest price that a New Zealand artist had oh, ever received. Kia ora, Catherine, because I'm a huge fan of his work, as it sounds like um, Phil is. And you do yep. these tours, don't you? In 30 seconds, 30 seconds Gregor, um, this area is particularly rich in history. What's a dark Dunedin tale that you can tell us in 30 seconds? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you one about the hotel, because they voted for prohibition in Port Chalmers in 1902, and it was a spite vote. It was a vote of the workers against the publicans, and for a while, Kerry's Bay Pub did very, very well, because it was just out of the boundary of the electorate, and with no hotels open in Port Chalmers, everyone would have gone to the bay. Unbelievable. Well... Give it a big hello to me next time I'm in uh, Dunedin. We'll have to go for a for a bike ride together, Gregor, and have a look at the hotel, eh? Hell yeah. Very good. That's Gregor Campbell, who does Tales 
from Dacus Dunedin to us. Gosh, your dad knew Ralph Hall, did he? Oh, yeah, they started the... Um, he was one of the original Māori artists that Fred, started... Fred, Fred Graham was Yeah, my father, um, who's... And they started the original Ngāpuna Waihanga, the Māori artists and writers oh. group. And there was Ralph, Dad, Para, and... Oh, God. Amazing. Well, good yeah. to have you on both. That's Catherine Graham, Phil O'Reilly. Kia ora to you both. I'm Wallace Chapman, a Power Ballad Friday. Tomorrow, Lisa Owen, Checkpoint is next.